You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's February 22nd, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT Cybersecurity Briefing, Dragos has released its ICS OT Cybersecurity Year in Review for 2022, finding a rise in ransomware attacks targeting industrial organizations. Forescout discloses two vulnerabilities affecting the Unity line of Schneider Electric's Modicon programmable logic controllers, and dozens of vulnerabilities have been discovered in industrial Internet of Things devices. Today's guest is Tim Starks from the Washington Post's Cybersecurity 202. Tim and I talk about the upcoming White House National Cyber Strategy and its possible effects on critical infrastructure. In the Learning Lab, Dragos's VP of Product and Industry Market Strategy, Mark Urban, begins his two-part discussion about the importance of incident response planning with Vern McCandlish, who is a principal industrial incident responder at Dragos. Dragos has published its ICS OT cybersecurity year in review for 2022. The report found that ransomware attacks against industrial organizations nearly doubled last year, with 70% of these attacks targeting the manufacturing industry. The report states there were multiple reasons for the increase in ransomware activity impacting industrial organizations, including political tensions, the introduction of Lockbit Builder and the continued growth of ransomware as a service. Dragos observed ransomware trends tied to political and economic events, such as the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and Iranian and Albanian political tensions. The security firm also discovered two new threat actors in 2022, Chernovite and Bentonite. Chernovite is the developer of PipeDream, an ICS attack framework that Drago says represents a substantial escalation in adversarial capabilities. The framework was likely developed by a state-sponsored actor, but Drago says it doesn't appear to have been deployed in the wild yet, stating, Dragos assesses with low confidence that no adversary has employed or leveraged components of PipeDream against industrial networks for disruptive or destructive effects. Dragos's discovery of Chernovite constitutes a rare case of accessing and analyzing malicious capabilities developed by an adversary before its deployment, giving defenders a unique opportunity to prepare in advance. Dragos's CEO, Robert M. Lee, said in a briefing that Chernovite targeted multiple electric and liquid natural gas sites in the U.S. in early 2022. Lee stated, this is the closest we've ever been to having U.S. infrastructure go offline. While Pipe Dream wasn't deployed, Lee says the threat actors were getting very close to pulling the trigger. Politico notes that Mandiant suspects that a Russian state-sponsored actor is behind Pipe Dream. Bentonite is a threat actor that's been opportunistically targeting maritime oil and gas, 
governments, and the manufacturing sectors since 2021. Drago says Bentonite conducts offensive operations for both espionage and disruptive purposes. Dragos, as a policy, doesn't attribute threat activity to particular nation-states, but the researchers note that Bentonite has overlaps with a threat actor tracked by Microsoft as Phosphorus, which Microsoft has tied to the Iranian government. The report also offers a look at data related to security improvements in different industrial verticals in 2022 compared to 2021. Drago says the oil and gas industry improved its security measures in most areas, probably due to the TSA security directives issued following the ransomware attack that hit Colonial Pipeline in May 2021. The researchers note, identifying ITOT interdependencies and applying strong network segmentation were major aspects of the security directives. Forescout has disclosed two vulnerabilities affecting the Unity line of Schneider Electric's Modicon programmable logic controllers. The security firm discovered the flaws last year as part of its OT icefall research, but waited to disclose them at the request of the vendor. One vulnerability can enable remote code execution via an undocumented memory write operation, while the other exemplifies a broken authentication scheme. The two flaws can be chained to carry out remote code execution on Modicon Unity PLCs, which can enable deeper access to industrial control systems. The researchers note that while the exploitation of these flaws is complex, organizations should keep these types of vulnerabilities in mind. The record quotes security researcher Joss Wetzels as saying, This is not your average script kitty stuff but it is something you should take into account as a possibility when you're designing new system architectures. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency on February 16th released 15 industrial control system advisories. They cover systems by Siemens, Sub-IoT, Delta Electronics, and BD Alaris. Operators check your systems and, as always, apply updates per vendor instructions. Researchers at Atorio have discovered 38 vulnerabilities affecting industrial Internet of Things devices from four separate vendors. Three of the vulnerabilities affect ETIC Telecom's remote access server. Two of the flaws impact Sierra Wireless AirLink router. And five affect in-hand networks in-router 302 and in-router 615. The rest of the vulnerabilities are still in the disclosure process. The researchers note that attackers can use publicly available apps, such as Wiggle, to identify these types of vulnerabilities, stating, Our scanning uncovered thousands of wireless devices related to industrial and critical infrastructure, with hundreds configured with publicly known weak encryptions. To mitigate IIoT vulnerabilities, Otorio offers the following recommendations. First, establishing a zero-trust policy between cells and the L3 control center, ensuring that if an attacker compromises a single cell, they won't be able to reach other cells or unnecessary services in the L3. Next, applying a whitelist-based communication template monitored by the FWIPS between L3 and the cells. The communication template will guarantee that only allowed traffic is sent from the cells to the L3. And lastly, 
creating a proxy address for Internet-managed devices, industrial cellular gateways, intelligent field devices, and so on. Traffic will be sent to the proxy functionality, which will perform man-in-the-middle to the data to detect any malicious behavior. Tim Starks is the author of the Washington Post Cybersecurity 202. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Tim about the upcoming White House national cyber strategy and its possible effects on critical infrastructure. Tim, it is great to have you joining us here on Control Loop. Uh, I want to focus on the White House's national cyber strategy and the effects that it may have on critical infrastructure. Can we start off with just a little overview for for folks who may not be all that familiar with the White House's national cyber strategy? I I know this is something you've done quite a bit of reporting on there at the Post. Yeah, so there's a relatively short history in terms of uh, the United States of national cybersecurity strategies, as you might expect. There was one uh, in the George W. Bush administration. It was... Mm -hmm. It was not highly regarded, terribly, but it was also, you know, a first. So that's that's somewhat to be expected. The criticism yeah. of that was that it just wasn't very connected to the overall uh, national security or homeland security strategies. So that was the first one. Obama did a couple things that could have been considered a, a national cyber strategy, but they didn't have that name. They had different names. So uh, that's not, you know, if you're being technical about it, they, they did not have a national cyber strategy. Trump did have one. Uh, that that is, you know, not not poorly regarded. You know, one of the one of the points of emphasis of that was about going on offense a little bit more. Even though they didn't use some of that phrasing directly, that was the one of the gists of it. It was very focused on, as all the others have been, regardless of whether they were true strategies or not, this need for public-private partnership. Which, if you've been in the cyber world, you've been hearing about that phrase for so long. Yeah, uh, and 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 voluntary measures. What we have happening with this administration, the Biden administration, is that they're uh, national security strategy is going to buck that convention. It's not going to say we don't need public-private partnership, but it is going to call more directly uh, than any strategy ever has. In fact, none have even come close to advocating for more regulation. Hmm. So you know, with the way strategies work, usually they are very high-level documents that don't have a lot of very specific policy prescriptions. They're meant to be a signaling of, of, of priorities, What's interesting about this one is we might actually see a little bit more of that than we usually do in a strategy. And one of the one of the other things that's interesting is that there might be a, a follow up implementation document. You know, when you look at most strategies, they don't say this is how we're going to do it. They say this is what we want to do. The the, the possibility of this implementation element makes this a, potentially more substantial than a lot of other of these past national cyber strategies we've had. What are some of the regulatory elements that have been included here? Well, again, it's 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 very broad in terms of um, how it uh, is going to approach that. I think what we've seen, you know, more specifically from the administration, it has been coming out of. Let me break this down. There there are several pow- centers of power uh, in the Biden administration as it pertains to cyber. This national strategy is being written by the National Cyber Director's Office. Um, there is a role for the uh, White House National Security Council in putting uh, some some finishing touches on it. So this is this is the the part of the document that is saying, this is the the national cyber cyber cybersecurity director. These are the the, the priorities. Um, it talks about the need for, to use regulation 
to level the playing field on national security. It talks about critical infrastructure in particular. And then some of the other stuff that, uh, that we're probably going to see as far as breaking things down further you know, will come in terms of elaboration from uh, administration officials. And, you know, in fact, Chris Inglis has talked about needing to go a little further uh, in areas, you know, the kind of areas where we have put some, some, more, market, some more regulations on industries, and not, and not just cyber, but talking about going a little bit further, specifically said, as we have for cars or airplanes or drugs or therapeutics. So the strategy looks at this from a very um, all, all critical sectors point of view, and and we'll talk, you know, it'll talk about using executive authority. It'll talk about we might need to go to Congress, we being the administration, uh, when they lack executive authority. And then and then I think what we've been seeing is coming out of the National Security Council, there's been more specific direction about sector by sector need for regulation. And and some of that has actually become reality already. Obviously, I think of of things like the what happened after Colonial Pipeline uh, hack, where they said to the TSA, we need you to put some more regulations in place for these very critical pipelines. Uh, they did that. They put some reporting requirements. They said, we need you to develop these certain kinds of plans that we can look at. It was a little bit of a rocky process uh, at first, but uh, they've gotten to a point of, of some harmony between industry and the actual agency, in the case of this one, the TSA, in, in doing uh, the regulations that, that are not so acrimonious as they were at first. So we're seeing some of this on, on, a, on a sector-by-sector basis playing out already, even without the strategy. Do we know what the pecking order is going to be in, in terms of the various organizations that will have a hand in this? I'm, you know, I'm thinking of like CISA, you know, what is their part to play? CISA has very little part to play in this. Um, they are they are going to have a, a well, I shouldn't say little, but they, they, ha- they are not going to be the agency that is telling people what to do. They are going to play a role in different ways. I'll give you an example of that. CISA, in this case, will likely be, according to White House officially spoke to, supporting the Environmental Protection Agency on its rules and mandates for improving cybersecurity at water facilities. Right now, there are these uh, sanitary reviews that, uh, that EPA does, and um, the, the talk is of putting CISA officials on those teams so that when they do those reviews, they also will review them for cybersecurity. CISA does not have much in the way of, of regulatory authority. There's one exception recently where, where they passed this, uh, this cybersecurity incident reporting law in Congress where, they, where CISA is going to play the lead role in, in writing that regulation and has been working on that already. Where most of this breaks down, I think, is it will be the very sector-specific agencies. And this is not just, I think, this is the, these are the plans. Mm. Um, you have an agency like you know, the Colonial Pipeline, TSA, is an agency that makes sense given their authority over some of those issues to do that. That's a sector-specific agency is what they call it. So anyway, that, that is one of the examples. Uh, other examples are, of course, you know, defense industrial base, uh, all those defense contractors and, and experts and, and academics who work. Uh, that are considered critical infrastructure, that'll be going to the Defense Department. There are some departments that share responsibility. Um, DAMS is one, where there are multiple agencies that are involved and there are multiple rules. Uh, I think Interior and Defense are the ones for those. And then there, there are agencies where, th- that's the agencies where they know they have some authorities. That's what we're talking about so far. Mm. There are other agencies where they, their authorities are not clear. They have responsibility for, for those sectors, but they don't have the, the rulemaking power to do what something like what TSA has already done. Uh, 
So we're, interestingly enough, a lot of those are at DHS specifically, and it's, it, it's not clear why that is the case, whether hmm. that was an oversight on the part of the people who wrote and created the, 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 the Department of Homeland Security, or whether it was a deliberate decision to, to keep them hands off. But that's things like um, election security or critical uh, communications. Those are areas where, where the, their authorities either don't exist or they're very unclear. It's going to basically it's going to go like that th- throughout the entire federal government and through every industry that is considered critical. This is this is of course something to keep in mind. That this is a, the, the caveat is that we're talking about not just critical infrastructure, which is a term we use for all these industry sectors that are very important, but the most critical of the critical infrastructure. You know, in the case of the pipelines, I think there are less than a hundred that they that these rules will apply to. They might expand them uh, and are in some cases are working to expand these rules to include other uh, the, the entirety of the sector, but but the, the focus at this point is largely on protecting the most critical of the most critical. You know, industry, I think it's fair to say, generally doesn't like having more regulations put upon them. Uh, how has the critical infrastructure uh, sector responded to what's coming from the White House? In some cases, they've been very blunt about how much they don't like it. Um, hmm. I think of uh, the air carriers uh, have been blunt about how, about the way that, that this has been approached in their sector. There is maybe a little bit of a, of a cognizance in the broader business community that this is what the administration wants to do. It's happening. They need to work with them uh, and try to, to, to get these rules to be something like what they're more comfortable with. They're not overly burdensome. And that, that is, to be, to, be, to be clear, something that, the, that this strategy says. They don't want to work with industry. They want to make it not so burdensome. But, but you know, there's no, there are very few industry, regula- industry groups who are calling for regulation for themselves. It's extremely rare in any field, uh, cyber included. Uh, there, have, there are exceptions, perhaps, where you might hear people on the sidelines. I was talking to Senator Warner, uh, who chairs the Intelligence Committee. Uh, he in the in the Senate he said that uh, he's heard from individual hospitals, um, smaller organizations that they would like to see some regulation, but the mm. industry groups in particular tend to not say yes we want this. In the case of like the Chamber of Commerce, they've said what they've functionally said is we understand that the, these regulations are, are are coming. They've been dealing with regulations in some way, shape, or form in various sectors. Uh, so they're saying let's make sure that these that these these new regulations don't conflict with old regulations or don't conflict with other regulations that are in the works. They said, let's see about trying to get people incentives to, uh, to do these things as opposed to punitive. So that's the way, that's the way the industry is approaching it. It's a little bit scattershot in, in, in terms of how things are going. Uh, but, but overall the message is we don't like them and we don't want them <laughs> if we can avoid it. <laughs> I, I wonder too, you know, the old, uh, please don't throw me in the briar patch, you know, kind of thing where, you know, I remember, uh, I think it was, uh, some folks from Facebook were testifying and they were saying how much they welcomed, you know, with this, our sector needs, you know, some more rules. Um, I, I wonder if that, if that could be at play here as well. Just, a, just a recognition that there's still work to be done. Things aren't as they need to be. So how do we balance acknowledgement of that with our desire to not be overly regulated? You know, it does not feel to me much like industry has, has been saying, uh, that they're underregulated, certainly, that they, they don't, you know, I think that they are aware that if, if the regulations are coming, they need to be working with the, indus- with the, with the administration as opposed to not. Mm. Um, you're better off being in the room than not being in the room, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. What are we looking at here in terms of timeline and, and prioritizing what different uh, areas get attention? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I had reported at my previous employer back in the spring about about what the thrust of this national cyber strategy was going to be. It had been in the works for a little while already, and they had targeted September for completion. Hmm. Now, if you cover government very often, you know they don't always hit the targets. Uh, clearly, they haven't hit the target here. I, you know, we had been hearing a little bit of uh, January is was the time frame for when the strategy might come out. Um, obviously, it's now not January. So when it will happen for sure, you know, we, you have Chris Inglis leaving office. You know, I think there were people who were of the mind that he might get this done before that all finished, but it doesn't look like that's the case. That's the strategy, though. That's again, that's the overarching document. If you're looking at sector by sector, it is uh, all over the place. In some cases, the regulations already done. In some cases, they're in the formative stages. In some cases, they're trying to figure out what kind of language they need to propose to Congress to say, hey, th- these agencies don't have the authority to put forward regulations in these sectors. And, and, and that stuff starts to get more, not even in the next couple of years, probably, because House Republicans have, have taken over that chamber. They are reflexively opposed to legislation. There is, sorry, reflexively opposed to regulation. Mm. And um, that's you know one of the reasons why I, I think we hear the discussion from the administration, there, there are a couple different reasons I think we hear from the, the discussion from the administration about, about terminology here. They've talked more about safety, less about security. They talk more about mandatory minimum standards or baseline standards or that kind of thing that is, it's a little bit of a marketing speak to, to, to try to say to Republicans, hey, we agree on cybersecurity. Let's work together to do these basic, these basic mandates. I still think that, that Republicans are going to come in very skeptically and have already expressed skepticism if you look at some of the leadership saying, we don't want to do that. But then you had, you know, again, the, the, a lot of this is targeted. I, you know, when I spoke to the, to the White House uh, recently, they had said you know, that they were targeting the end of the month of January for the EPA regulations. But, you know, I've been hearing about the deadline for that happening or, or the target for that happening for a very long time, months and mm. months and months and months. So there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's no, there's, there's a sort of a, a, a series of, of, uh, pot spinning that, uh, that, that there are, that there are tops that are spinning that they're trying to, to, to get stop and finish. Um, and, and in some cases they have, in some cases things have been pushed back. Uh, I think, I think they're working on it all at the same time. It's just a matter of how much they can get out the door under what authorities. You've spoken to several members of Congress about this as well. I mean, are there are there particular members that you see taking uh, the reins here, taking a leadership role? Yeah, I mean, certainly you could see uh, Senator Warner um, focusing on health care and and wanting to clarify things like who's in charge uh, of 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 pushing forward those those rules for uh, industry and and uh, the sector. You know, in the in the past, uh, Senator Peters, who chairs the Homeland Security Committee uh, had been a, the, the main driving force for the uh, the cyber incident reporting law. I don't think that there's anybody who who right now has a you know strong. I'm going to take charge in this sector and really try to push these things forward, mm. um, with a couple exceptions, and, and in part because I think they're you know it's the it's the beginning of a new year in Congress, and people are still working out what their priorities are going to be, and they're still working out what they're going to be able to agree on. With the Senate being Democrat controlled and the and the and the House being uh, Republican controlled and the administration being Democratic controlled, it, I think there there's going to be a, a feeling out process of who 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 they think, what they think they can get done by whom and with whom. Yeah, is it fair to say that if we if we had another incident, you know, a, a colonial pipeline level thing that uh, that could draw everyone's attention and move up the timeline 
as well? Yeah, I think that you know that's that is one of the ways our, our country functions, for better or mm. worse. <laughs> um, you know, nine eleven uh, was a, f- a formative part of my life and career, and that is when a lot of things happened uh, as a result of that major catastrophe. If you look at the colonial pipeline, you know, if it was just colonial pipeline, maybe maybe we wouldn't have had the momentum for that cyber incident reporting law that we did. But we also had solar winds. We also had Kaseya. We also had JBS, the beef manufacturer. We, had, we, we saw things hitting people in their pocketbooks in a way that we hadn't before. And that's the kind of thing that, that can encourage uh, politicians to respond. Right. And I think that you know, there, there's always this argument that happens. Let's not wait for that to happen. You know, we, we know it's going to happen eventually. Let's not wait for it. But that often falls on deaf ears until the thing actually happens. So yeah, I think I, I don't even think. I, I pretty much know that, that for, for something really dramatic to happen uh, on this front, something really dramatic will have to happen on the attacker's front. That's Tim Starks from The Washington Post Cybersecurity 202. In today's Learning Lab, Dragos's VP of Product and Industry Market Strategy, Mark Urban, begins his two-part discussion about the importance of incident response planning. Joining him is Vern McCandlish, who's a principal industrial incident responder at Dragos. Hi, I'm Mark Urban once again with the Learning Lab here at Control Loop, and I'm joined by Vern McCandlish, one of our incident responders here at Dragos. In fact, Vern, give, give me your, your formal title that we were just talking about. I am a principal industrial incident responder. Principal industrial incident responder, which, which means you've probably been around the block a little bit with some incidents. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. <laughs> that's fair to say. So we... We had in the last couple episodes, we had Leslie Carhart talking through, you know, what are some of the things that companies in the industrial space can do in order to better prepare for an incident response, what's in the plan, et cetera, like this. And because, and I know you you have a, a strong view of that, but you've also been through a number of incidents. And part of this is to give folks some color as to, you know, we talked about the theory with Leslie about what happens in an in incident, but why don't you bring us in and talk about a couple incidents and what you found? What are some interesting stories that can highlight the importance of planning? What are, you know, some stories that can highlight things to avoid? So give us a couple. So I'll start off with what I consider to be the basic one. It happened to me when I did incident response in the IT space. And now it's happening again uh, when I'm in the OT space. And that is where a well-meaning uh, government agency will contact a company or an organization and tell them, hey, we see evidence that you are being currently attacked and potentially are compromised by a state-sponsored or very large uh, economically motivated activity group. And that's all they give them. There is no other information. It's just a government agency showed up and said, hey, you are compromised. You are the target. You are likely breached. But we can't give you any of the details right now because that would give away too much about how we know things. So we just need you to start looking. And that's a place that you kind of have to have a plan for because it's a very dark and scary space now. 
So what we have done with that is try to work, you know, try to track the activity groups, know what their methods, their tools, tactics, and procedures are so that we can actually try to figure out where we need to start looking when one of those organizations calls us. That also works for if I'm in an organization and I'm, I have to anticipate that this could be a call that I get. And it could even be just a call from another company that says, hey, I see your systems attacking mine. Where do you actually start? What do you actually start looking for? Do you have the capability to actually go? It's more like a threat hunt or, or hunting because you have no evidence that it's happened yet. You don't know where it's happening. You don't know what it's going to look like. But you have to be capable of going in and doing some forensic analysis on systems and on your network to be able to figure out what is happening. Is this true? Is this really happening? And the big pitfall that I see with that is there's a lot of denial at first. Well, if it was happening, we would have seen it. Or, well, now that you've told us and we look, we haven't seen it yet. And there's a lot of hopefulness of, well, we spent three days looking and we haven't found it. And there's always a yet at the end of that statement when I'm working, because I have yet to have a government agency come to an organization and say, we see that you are being targeted and attacked right now and not eventually finding out it's true. So there's a pretty high correlation of, you know, if somebody at an agency says, hey, you know, your haystack has a couple needles in it, and then they go searching after it. And if they don't have the right methodology to, you know, to look through the haystack, then it takes them longer to find it. But you're saying there's there are always needles in that haystack. That's a terrible metaphor, but that's what you're saying. Hey, if, they, if you get that call, there's something going on and don't think your lack of the ability to find it is a good thing. And that really is the point that I, when I, and I understand why the government agencies do this. It's not an exercise on their part. They're not being, you know, super suspicious or anything. They actually have a lot of other drivers behind why they would do this, but they do notify the organization, hey, you're the target, go look for it. But we really can't tell you what to look for or what specific thing. They might give them a, hey, go look at this particular part of your network or something, but it's usually, I used to say, it's like, hey, there's something going on in that room over there. Well, what's going on? I don't know. You have to go look. It's not specific enough. You need to have the ability to go in and figure it out. All right. So then as as you're talking about going in and have that ability to find out, what's the fork on the road that makes that a much simpler, more straightforward process versus something that takes far too long and doesn't end up in the right place? What are some of the key things that, you know, that differentiate, you know, a quick and clean process or, or something that's too long and drawn out and not successful? Well, the first is to actually have somebody that can do the incident response, have someone that can actually do that investigation for you, whether that's your IT department, whether you actually have an OT specific team, whether you have a third party vendor that you uh, actually have that task contracted out to have a plan for if that type of call is made, who are you going to engage on your team or externally actually do this work. And the second part, the thing that makes the work hard or easy is whether you have planned or visibility. Do you actually have the ability to see into the spaces where we would want to go look? So if I get called into these and I want to know where the data is, where is your network telemetry? Where are your endpoint logs? And if I'm having to go system by system and switch by switch to get this information, that's a lot harder and it's going to be a lot slower than if we've already have a plan of collecting data so that it's visible to security operators and hunters to be able to find. And so you brought up, as you said, whether it's the IT person, but 
you know, if you get onto the industrial side, into the operational technology, into the industrial control systems that are, have, you know, the specialized protocols that have their own kind of unique things, very different from IT, can somebody on that side of the, you know, of the equation be effective in, in sussing out threats on the operational side or the industrial side? They can because they can get started. Typically, I, since IT butts right up against OT, uh, the attackers very rarely are getting directly into OT without going through some type of thing like a VPN server or a jump box or something else that the IT person would at least have visibility and understanding and knowledge of. And possibly they have the authority. They actually have the credentials that would allow them to go in and do this type of investigation. So it doesn't preclude them from doing it. Does it help to actually have experience doing this on the other side of the DMZ in the industrial space so you have more opportunities for data and understanding and context to look for? Absolutely. But I'm not going to, I, even though I do industrial incident response, the people in IT actually have the skills and oftentimes they're the ones that have the authority to go do this first, uh, first attempt at triage, first attempt at trying to figure out what's going on. Even if it's in the OT systems, often there's a trail from the IT system through remote access uh, and things like that. That's a good point. So as you look at how do people cross over from that IT world into the OT systems, a lot of times it's because they're not segmenting their access credentials. Okay, so government agency says you got something going on and you know it's better if you have the information base there to look through. It's better if you have somebody skilled, whether it's on the IT side or the OT side, to be able to do it. So bring us through then, have you been in a situation that's, you know, outside of government agencies? So, so let's pick a different war story, if it will. And yet, what, what else has illustrated some of the challenges and things not to do when it comes to incident response? Well, I don't think it is much as a what not to do. The second thing I had on my list that I really had a passion to talk about today was the prevalence of third-party vendors that operations relies upon to do things in their environment. Uh, these can be 20 to 30 year service contracts with very large organizations that supply the equipment. They can be software licenses with companies that do things like historians, or they do they provide the VPN services at the perimeter. And these third-party vendors oftentimes have proprietary systems that do a lot of this work. Now, we at Dragos do a lot of this, the stuff necessary to be able to see or know what those things are doing in context. But actually being able to do forensics on, on a device requires me to actually have the authority, have the credentials. I need to have the elevated privileges to be able to do the forensics on the system. And oftentimes that's going to mean we have to make a ticket with the vendor to come in and do that. You are in a crisis. We have found the bad person coming in through your VPN server. We have found the bad person is utilizing this software stack from this vendor that you use. And you may not have the permissions necessary to be able to go in and do the investigation to figure out what's going on. So now I have to engage as an incident responder, a third-party vendor, and I have to get them to prioritize it the way we have it prioritized and coming quickly to get us this information and access. And identifying who those vendors are, what those appliances are in your environment can help inform a data collection strategy where you could get some of those logs forwarded off, or you could have a break glass in case of emergency set of credentials that you can use on the device. I've had this happen where I had the opportunity to basically do the collection on a device. I knew how to do collection on the device, 
But in the contract, if I did the collection on the device, I could disrupt their service contract. They'd still have to pay it, but the company wouldn't have been on the hook for actually having to provide the service anymore because you avoid the service contract. So again, we're not talking about a one or two year contract. A lot of these things are in the industrial space, 10, 20. I've even seen 30 year contracts for service uh, level agreement. You just can't take that lightly. So that's, that is a challenge that we as incident responders have to identify and would like to identify ahead of time. If I come into an environment, I know that those five things require me to get a hold of the vendor and I see the attacker is touching one of those five. I know how to do it. We have a workflow, we have a plan, and we have already socialized with that vendor what we expect them to do. And it's hopefully it's in writing. So there, there's two things in there that, I'll, that one I'll tease out is like, first of all, the Gazinta, that might be the ingress of that particular attack might be through that third party vendor. Maybe not, but that's a, that we, we've seen that in, you know, in a lot of the industrial engagements that our company does. And then secondly, you're saying also that like, okay, if A, that might be the ingress vector and then B, by the way, as you're trying to troubleshoot if you're locked out of that system because you don't have the proper credentials that are controlled by that external vendor. So it's like a double whammy. And those are the things that you want to prepare for. Like, hey, what are those systems that have escalated privileges that are controlled by an external third party? And let's get that escalation chain established beforehand, not when we're in the middle of a fire. Absolutely. And the, the analogy I use is local fire departments will typically do questionnaires to the community to look for people that might have an acetylene tank at a business, what types of things that they have. So they know ahead of time what they can anticipate when they respond and they have that information available. In the digital OT incident response space, we're looking for the same types of things. What are the things in your environment that are going to require extra care and what are going to require third-party vendors uh, for us to engage in? Because now it's not just the, and even when I do external incident response, it's not just the victim organization. And it's not just me coming in to help them. We are now having to engage one or more third-party vendors to come in and help get the data so we can answer the questions. Thank you, Vern uh, McCandlish, Principal Industrial Responder here at Dragos. Thank you very much. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Next time.